Okay, so uh, today we have two things to do. Today we have to uh, have the regular brief overview with the insights to the Torah portion. And tomorrow night starts the holiday of Hanukkah. So uh, then, in other words, the first day of Hanukkah is Friday, and we always start the day with the night before, as it says in the verses in Genesis, and it was the evening and the morning of the first day, the evening and the morning of the second day of day two. So we always start the night before. So Hanukkah is going to start tomorrow night, Thursday night, and Friday will be the first day. So we're going to talk about that too. But let's first go through a, uh, a brief overview with some insights into the weekly Torah portion. So this week's Torah portion begins with Jacob finally settling at home. That's what happened at the end of last week's Torah portion. We have that Jacob finally came back to the uh, land of his fathers and he's settled down. And then, interesting enough, the Torah in verse 2, before it starts telling us the story, it says, Ele toldot Yaakov. These are the offsprings of Yaakov. Yosef ben Shvaa Joseph was 17 years old. So why, why does it say these are the offsprings of Jacob? And he only mentions Joseph. And there's a lot of teachings about that. A lot of teachings. Um, there's the teaching that Joseph was identical to Jacob um, simply physically. There is the teaching that Everything that Jacob learned when he studied in the house of study from Shem and Aver, he passed over to Joseph. Joseph was his spiritual successor. And then there's a beautiful Kabbalistic teaching which explains that Jacob, everything that Jacob was, he was in the spiritual world. And he lived in isolation, so to speak, of the physical world. And that's why he was a shepherd, because it didn't demand much physical engagement. Now, on the other hand, Joseph inherited all of Jacob's spirituality, but his job, and only his job, because the other 11 brothers all were also shepherds, only Joseph was the one, so to speak, to inherit all of the spirituality with the mandate to completely bring it into the physical world. And hence, Joseph is the one to become the viceroy of Egypt, which was then the world power. And there, as the viceroy of Egypt, he remained as Joseph, the son of Jacob, with all his spirituality and all his commitment to the traditions and God of his fathers. And then it tells us three things about Joseph. It tells us that Joseph was the one that was kind and compassionate to the children of the maids. So you'll remember from last week that Jacob had two wives, actually two weeks ago, Jacob had two wives, two sisters, Rachel and Leah. Rachel, because she couldn't have children, so she gave her maid, Billah, as a 
wife to Jacob, and through Bila she had children, and through that she merited to later have her own children, Joseph and Benjamin. When Leah saw this, Leah did the same with her maid, which was Zilpah, and therefore what ended up happening was that there were four children that were the children of the maids, two and two, and then there was the other eight children, which were from the two wives, two from Rachel, and then you had the other six from, from Leah. Now, what he's saying here is that the children of Leah would be very harsh with the children of, of uh, the two maids. They wouldn't be respectful to them. And uh, therefore, Joseph was the one who was very, very much compassionate to them and, and giving them respect. And then Joseph also would tell his father what the other brothers were doing wrong. And then the third thing it tells us is that Jacob loved Joseph more than all his other children. And simply speaking, because he was the firstborn of the, of the wife that Jacob most loved, which was Rachel. And then, not only that, but he gave to Joseph a very specific coat of many colors. And because of that, the brothers clearly saw the favoritism and they ended up hating Joseph. Now, that's telling us a general background of the relationship between the brothers, who the relationship between Jacob and Joseph. And then it tells us a specific story. And the specific story is that Joseph had a dream, and in the dream, he tells them that each one of them was represented by all bundles. They were each a bundle of straw, a bundle of hay. And then he talks about how all their bundles all bowed to his bundle. And the brothers said to him, what are you dreaming? That we're going to bow to you? You're going to be a king over us? And then Joseph has a second dream, and this time in the dream, there's the sun and the moon, and there is the stars, and all the stars and the sun and the moon is bowing to his star. At this point, he tells it first to his brothers, but because this dream also has that of the sun and the moon, which would represent the father and the mother, he repeats the dream again, in front of his brothers to Jacob. And Jacob tells him, what are you dreaming? That your father and your mother are going to bow to you? And in that line, what Jacob was trying to do was to diffuse the brother's feelings towards Joseph. Because when he said, your father and your mother, Joseph's mother died. So what he was trying to say was, you see that this dream has foolishness to it. And our sages tell us, and Rashi quotes, that what, Joseph, what Jacob didn't know was that because Bila was the adoptive mother 
of Joseph. Once Rachel died, Rachel's maid was bringing up her children. Therefore, the Torah was referring to Bila as the mother of Joseph. Now, parenthetically speaking, I just want to share with you that from here, there are very interesting laws on how one needs to respect an adopted parent, a parent who is taking care. We have the wording, megadlo. Megadlo means bringing him or her up. So there's special laws concerning that. Now, what it then says is that the brothers remained angry at him, but Jacob, it says, Shomar Eshadovar. Shomar Eshadovar means that he was waiting to see the fulfillment of this dream. Now, simply speaking, Jacob knew that Joseph having these dreams was not just plain dreams. And interesting, I once gave a class, it's recorded, it's up in the SoundCloud um, app for anyone who wants to hear it. But I, I gave a class once about dreams because in this week's portion and next week's Torah portion, we have six dreams. We have two of Joseph, we have the wine merchant, we have the baker, and then we have two of Pharaoh. So interesting, I went through the different teachings in the Talmud and in the Kabbalah about dreams. So there is this concept that a dream is also, like we see by Pharaoh and we see by the wine merchant, we see by the baker, that God was telling them of upcoming events. Now, even more so, the fact that Joseph was a shepherd in a family of shepherds, and all of a sudden Joseph is having dreams of monarchy, was completely out of the ordinary and out of place. Hence, Jacob was feeling that this isn't just a regular dream that he must have thought about by day and he dreamt at night. This whole thing is foreign. We are shepherds. Hence, Jacob realized that this dream isn't of natural order, but rather it's a message. Then the story goes on that the brothers went to take their flock to pasture in Shechem. Now, Shechem has always been, for some reason in the Torah, up to date, it has been problematic. It was problematic for Jacob. It was problematic for Jacob's daughter, Dina, who was raped there. And now it's going to become problematic for Joseph because that's where he's going to be sold into slavery. Now, jo J Jacob calls to Joseph, being that all his brothers are out there in the field, you know, shepherds, they, they would go out and they would just stay there for a while with their flock until the grass was all gone and then they would move. So Jacob is calling Joseph, telling Joseph, I'm sending you to go ahead and to see how are your brothers faring. I haven't heard from them. How are they? Now, interesting enough, in verse 4, 
it says, Vayishlachehu, and Jacob sent him, Me'emek Chevron, from the depths of Chevron. Now, when it comes to Chevron, Chevron is on a mountain, not in a valley. So why would it say from the depths of Chevron? And our sages immediately point out to us, the depths of Chevron is referring to he who is buried in Chevron, in the depths of Chevron. Who is buried in the depths of Chevron? We are talking about Abraham. And why are we talking about Abraham now? Because you will remember in the covenant that God made with Abraham, God told Abraham, your offspring will be slaves in a foreign nation who will persecute them for four generations, and then they will be returned to the land of Canaan, which will then become the land of Israel. Now, because this story is what leads up to Jacob and the, or his family, i.e. the entire Jewish people, to go down to Egypt. Therefore, we are taught that this is all happening from the covenant that was made with he who lies in the depths of Hebron, which refers to Abraham. Now, I want to share with you what this means. The Talmud says, if you want to take a cow out of the barn, don't fight with the cow. Take out the calf and the cow will follow. And the Talmud says, this is a metaphor to what's happening here. Jacob has to be brought to Egypt. So instead of working with Jacob, God took Jacob's calf which is Joseph, and brought Joseph to Egypt, and hence the cow, the parent, Jacob, follows. That's one concept. Why specifically with Joseph, why does Joseph have to be separated from his father for 22 years? Because that was the amount of time that Jacob separated himself from Isaac, Hence, the same thing was brought upon him that Joseph was separated from him for 22 years. And Jacob, Joseph goes to where he heard his brothers were. His brothers aren't there. And here it says, and a man saw him there. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? Now, Interesting, I mentioned to you last week when we spoke about Jacob sending the angels. So I mentioned to you last week that there are times in the verse where it uses the word man for an angel. This is one of those times. When the verse says, and a man found him wandering in the field, asked him, what are you looking for? This man our sages tell us, is angel Gabriel. Now, why Gabriel? Because Gabriel is the angel on the left side, which is the angel of strictness and justice. Being that we're about to begin the process of exile, 
even though this is to lead up for the benefit and the refinement of the Jewish people, but nevertheless, it's an act of exile. Hence, they, it was Angel Gabriel who was the one that connected Joseph with his brothers so that he would be sold. And so it is that he tells him, I heard them saying that they're going to Dotan, that's the name of a place, and Joseph goes looking for his brothers and he finds them in Dosan. Now, they see him from afar and they go ahead and they start, all their resentment starts boiling up in them when they see Joseph and they say, let's kill him. Now, our sages wants to know who's the one that said to kill him. We're going to see soon that it can't be Reuven, the oldest child, because Reuven is the one that gives the idea not to kill him. It can't be Judah, because Judah is the one that says, why would you want to kill him and have his blood on our hands? Let's sell him into slavery instead. Now, the two younger brothers were much younger. They wouldn't have been the ones to set it. Now, the other brothers were the sons of the maids, who they liked Joseph. Hence, we know from here that it is the same two brothers that seem to be having a violent streak. They're the ones that murdered the entire, the entire kingdom of Shechem, and they're the ones that said, let us kill. And that's why you will notice later on, jumping ahead in the story, when they do come to Joseph, after Joseph is viceroy, and Joseph says, I'm going to put one of you in prison while the rest of you go home to your father, he took Shimon because he knew that when Shimon and Levi were together, there was going to be danger and violence. That's the way they reacted. So our sages tell us that it was Shimon and Levi, which were the ones that wanted to kill Joseph for having dreams and, uh, you know, projecting that he was going to be king over them. Now, I want to point out to you something that to me personally is very deep. So I want to read to you verse 20. Va'ata and now, lechu let us go, v'nargehu and we will kill him, v'nashlichehu and then we will throw his carcass, v'achad haboyrus into one of these ditches, v'amarnu and we will say to our father, he was attacked, killed, and eaten by a wild beast. And then listen to the last words. And then will be seen what will be with his dreams. Now, simply speaking, what we would say is that they're being cynical, saying, let's kill him, and then we'll see what happens to his dreams. Our sages tell us that those last four words was said by God and was not said by them. In other words, they were saying, let's kill him. And God said, aha, let's see what's going to happen to his dreams. I told him in his dreams that he's going to be king over you. You're saying to kill him. And our sages bring a simple proof because if they said, let's kill him, then obviously they knew that the dreams wouldn't come true. Now, the message I want to share with you here is that look how the Torah 
Look how the sages are so certain that there is no cynicism. They refuse to see that it was the same people who said, let's kill him, that they would then scoff and say, ah, and then let's see what happens to his dreams. And I think what's so important from this is the lesson, how careful we have to be not to be cynical, not to use sarcasm. By the way, if you do, if you read up on child psychology, you will see that it has been proven that children are completely lost when they come across sarcasm and they come across cynicism. They just don't know how to deal with sarcasm. It is not a normal human way of being and of talking. We learned this. We learn it in, in not knowing how to deal with things, not knowing how to have a full, mature debate, discussion. We turn to sarcasm as a weapon to shut down and bully down anyone else. And that, the Torah is telling us right away, is not the way of Jacob's children. Now, Ruvain hears this, and Ruvain, the Torah testifies that Ruvain wants to save Joseph. So he says to them, why are you going to kill him? Just throw him in the ditch, you know, and he'll die by himself. Why do you guys have to have blood on your hands? Just throw him in a ditch. And the verse testifies that Joseph's thoughts were that later he'll come back and he'll pull Joseph out of the ditch. He'll take him back home and everyone will calm down. However, Ruvain had to leave the group because now that Joseph came, it was Ruvain's turn. Every day there would be a different son or every week. I don't know what the setup was, but there would be a rotation in which son would be with their father tending to his needs. And now it was Ruvain's turn. So Ruvain was not going to witness what is about to happen. He gave his idea and they accept his idea. He sees that they took off the coat of Joseph, which was such a sore point of jealousy for them. And they throw him into the ditch. Now, in, in the rest of the story, they sit down and they're having lunch. Ruvain goes on his way. And all of a sudden, there's a group of people that were um, businessmen, um, uh, peddlers of perfumes. And, they, and Judah then says, why should we just let him die here? We're going to leave him in the ditch. He can't get out. He's going to die of starvation, of heat, whatever it is. So therefore, why? Why do we have to kill him? Let's sell him to these people. And that's what they did. They sold him into slavery. Now, just that you should know that Joseph was sold over a couple of times because in one verse, it calls the people the Yishmaelim, the offsprings of Yishmael, who we would call Muslims. Then it says Midianim, Midianites. So therefore, we see that Joseph was sold not just once. And they bring Joseph to Egypt. Now, we put the story of Joseph on in parenthesis, on, on pause. And all of a sudden, the verse says, Reuben comes back to the ditch to fulfill his plan 
of saving his brother, and he sees that Joseph is gone, and he rents his garment. And he goes to his brothers and says, what did you do? Where, where am I to hide now? I am the oldest child. Where am I to hide now from our father's pain? So the first thing they do is they come up with their trap. And what is their trick? They go ahead and they slaughter a goat and they use its blood to stain the coat of Joseph. And they bring it to their father and they place it before their father. And they fool him and they lie to him. And our sages say, Jacob fooled his father wearing a furry coat that he should think that that Jacob was really Esau. So too was Jacob fooled by a coat. And later we're going to see soon that Judah, who was the, the orchestrator of all of this, he too was fooled by Tamar with a cloak. Now, what happens is they put this down and they ask their father, do you recognize this? And immediately his, the, Jacob realizes what happened or what he thought happened. And he cries out and he says, an animal has killed my son, Joseph. Jo Jacob rented his garment and Jacob mourned his son until he would be reunited with him. 22 years, Jacob mourned his son. Now, I want to share with you what that means. The Talmud says that God made a covenant, so to speak, with the dead, that eventually the living should be able to move on. They shouldn't be stuck in the loss of the family member who died. However, this covenant was only made with the dead not with the kidnapping. And therefore, Jacob started, started thinking, what's going on here? 22 years, and I haven't been consoled. I haven't moved on an iota from the original source of pain. That means that Joseph isn't dead. And therefore, Jacob, we are taught, started already thinking, what did they do to Joseph? He's not dead. And the story returns and tells us that Joseph was sold to the minister of meat in the house of Pharaoh, the palace of Pharaoh. Now, I want to pause for a moment and give you some mystical insights. We are going to come across three different specific food ministers of Pharaoh. Very interesting. We talk about the Sarah Tabachim, the one that was in charge of the meat. We talk about the Sarha Mashkin, the one that was in charge of his wine. And we talk about the Sarha Ofim, the one that was in charge of all the baked goods. Why? Why is the story why does Joseph have to deal with these three ministers? Joseph is a slave of, he sold to the, the, the meat department minister. And then he, his redemption begins and starts with uh, him interpreting the dreams of the wine merchant and of the baker of Pharaoh. What's going on here? So I'm going to share with you some Kabbalistic insight. 
Remember I shared with you when we started tonight that Joseph's job was to take all the spirituality and devotion of Jacob the shepherd, the spiritual man, and bring it into a physical life, a metropolitan capital of the superpower of the world at the time. And that's where he's going to remain dedicated and loyal to his spirituality. Now, what that means in our personal lives, what does that mean in our personal lives, you and me and me and you? And the answer is that spirituality is primarily in the mind of the human. That's where a person connects with spirituality. The greatest tool the human was given was his power of intellect to be able to think beyond self. Animals cannot think beyond self. No creature can think beyond self other than the human being. The human being can truly step out of self, ponder about God, ponder about before and after the only human being. So spirituality of the human being is primarily in the brain, in the mind. Now, the job of Joseph is to bring that spirituality of the mind into the heart, into the stomach, into the reproductive organs, into his physicality. Now, what stands in between the mind and the heart and lower? And the answer is Meitzar Hagorin, the narrowness of the throat. The throat is very narrow, tight, and constricted. Now, what exists in the throat? In the neck exists three primary things. There is the windpipe, there is the food pipe, and there is the arteries. And each one has a different job. One is the food, one is the ear, the spirituality, the oxygenation of the blood, and one is the blood. And therefore, Joseph has to deal and has to be able to refine and bring humility and transparency to the three things that get in the way between the spirituality of the mind being able to descend and permeate the rest of our being. Simply speaking, the blood represents the oxygen. The, the ear represents the frivolity of thought and in, in a frivolous way. And the food, the food pipe represents the food which weighs us down and makes us be more like animalistic than humane and divine. Hence, we're being told that Joseph's challenge in going and bringing the spirituality of the mind into the physicality of our body and our lives is dealing with the three main ministers of the neck, which stands in between and as a hindrance and blockage of making coarse the human divinity. So I just wanted to share that Kabbalistic teaching with you up front. Now, and by the way, there, there, is, there is this process of in self-refinement to be careful with the eating, 
not to eat for pleasure, but to eat for necessity with the blood, which is the passion. Let's be careful where we allow, allow our heat, our passion, our rage, our lust, and our desires, where we let it go. And then there is the ear. Now, simply speaking, what would that mean for you and me? The ear pipe represents speech. And it was a very normal process for people to take upon themselves a speaking fast, which means they won't talk. They're not going to allow, the verse says, and his soul went out in his words. And our sages tell us a deeper insight to that, that most often we lose our soul through the frivolness, the gossip, the, the inappropriateness of our words. So there is a specific service that we work on helping the neck not be a hindrance in the flow from the spirituality of the mind to the heart, to the body. Now let's go further. The story gets put on a pause. Why? Because before we talk about what happened to Joseph, we're going to talk about what happened to Judah. Now Rashi tells us that the reason why we have this part of the story come in is because it's all connected. How is it connected? When the brothers saw how much their father was suffering and hurting over what they did, immediately they pointed a finger at Judah. You're the one that gave us the idea not to kill him, but to sell him. And we listened to you. If you would have given us the idea to just cut it out, we would have listened to you. And Judah was the leader of the pact. We're going to find that over and over. Judah is a tribe of monarchy. From Judah comes King David. Now, I want to stick in my own two cents here. From here, we're going to learn the primary, primary characteristic of leadership. You take responsibility. All the other brothers were pointing a finger at him. It was easier. Shimon and Levi were the ones who started this whole thing. But no, everyone's pointing at Judah. You should have stopped us. What's amazing is that Judah accepts this responsibility. He accepts this guilt. He accepts that he could have stopped them. Hence, you already see that Judah has the makings and the characteristics of monarchy and leadership. He's going to take responsibility. Now, I want to just share with you what that means practically. And I learned this lesson in a very interesting way. You will have people who run offices, and when there's a mistake that happens, and very often, even if they're to blame, they're going to blame their secretary. Ah, what do you, I don't know what she was thinking. But then there are people who are heads of departments that even though it wasn't them, it was one of their underlings. And even though they told their underling, don't do that. However, to the higher ups, they accept responsibility because it was their department. Oh, they'll then work it out with the underling who did what they shouldn't have done. But leadership is in the capacity of saying, 
whether I did it or I didn't do it, it was done under my guard. I am responsible and I have to rise up to that responsibility. An interesting lesson in this whole story. And what is the story? That Judah went away from the family. He pulled away because of they were blaming him and he accepted the responsibility. So he was going to work it out. That is Rashi's interpretation, simple interpretation. However, there is an amazing deeper interpretation as well. Joseph's going to Egypt is going to start the entire process of exile. And we are taught that every exile the Jews ever went through is all under the name of the exile of Egypt. Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim in Hebrew means constraints. And that's what exile is all about. Constraints upon our spirituality. Therefore, the rule, the rule in spirituality is that before God gives the sickness, God first gives the medicine. Hence, for example, in the story of Purim, before Haman is exalted and lifted up, Esther first becomes queen. So the cure comes before the sickness. So too, the story we're about to read now is how Judah gives birth to a two children that are called Peretz and Zarach. Peretz is the ancestor of King David, which means of King Solomon, which means of Mashiach, may he come speedily in our days. So right here in the Torah portion, we're seeing that once again, God is planting the cure before he, the redemption, before he brings about the sickness, the exile. And now for the story. So Judah gets married to a woman and this woman bores for him three children. And the three children's name is Er, Onan, and Shiloh. And when they grow up, Judah brings a wife for his son Er, and her name was Tamar. And this Tamar was an exceedingly beautiful woman. And because Er was still immature in understanding a woman's beauty, so he was afraid to get her pregnant because it would diminish of her pristine beauty. So he committed the sin of spilling seed and not allowing her to get pregnant. And it says that God saw what he did and he died. Then the law is that when you have a brother who dies without any offspring, so the next brother marries the widow in order to build offspring for his brother, and that is called Yibum. And that's what Judah does. Judah tells Onan, please marry your brother's widow, have a child which will be called on your brother's name that he should not be eradicated from the memory and the history of mankind. However, Oinon feels the same way about the beauty of Tamar. He does the exact same thing his brother Er did, and he too dies. 
At this point, Judah tells Tamar, listen, my, I have only one son left, Shiloh, and let him mature before he becomes your wife and before he becomes your husband. And he sends Tamar back home. Okay, time goes on. Shiloh grew up and he's mature. And Tamar is obviously keeping an eye on what's going on in her father-in-law's house. And she gets to see that Shiloh grew up. It's time for him to get married. And obviously Judah is afraid for the woman who was the cause of the death, and I don't mean the cause as in blame, but it's through her, the death of his two sons, is not planning to allow her to become the wife of Shiloh. Now, what would happen then is that Tamar would be stuck. She can't marry anyone else until Shiloh releases her, which either does chalitza, a different process, or she marries him. And therefore, she sees that what Judah is doing so she finds out one day that Judah is coming to her side of town with the sheep. So she dresses herself up. And the simple story is that she dresses herself up as a harlot and she stays on the side of the road. Now, Judah is intrigued by her and Judah wants to be with her. Now, if you read this simple story, it seems to be that Judah was simply paying for to have sex with Tamar. However, our sages see from the words that that's not the way it was done. However, be it as it may, let's just go ahead with the simple story. So Tamar, um, he asked Tamar, I want to be with you. And Tamar says, and what will you give me for it? So he says, I will give you this and this. And he gives livestock, he says. And she says, and what are you going to give me until you send me that as collateral? And she says she wants his staff, his signature ring, and his cloak. Hence what I told you before, Judah, who fooled his father with Joseph's coat, is now being fooled by the cloak. And he goes ahead, and he's with her. And then he goes back, and he sends his person that he trusts with the goats and to go ahead with the sheep, to go ahead and to get back his, his cloak, his stick, and his uh, ring. He goes there, the guy, and he says, there's no one here. And he asks around, where is the harlot that usually stands here? And they said, no, <laughs> there's never a harlot here. So he goes back to Judah and he tells Judah, and Judah says, Please stop going around and asking. It's just causing embarrassment. God is my witness that I sent out to keep my word. Okay. Three months later, the news breaks. Pregnancy is showing. And Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law got pregnant. And he knows it's not from Shayla. So he's going to judge her. She had an affair on her designated one. And therefore he's going to rule that she be killed. And when she is brought before him, she doesn't say boo. She just takes out the ring, the cloak, and the staff. And she says, it is from the owner of these items that I am pregnant. 
Now, our Talmud teaches us how great, how great is Tamar. She said, I am not going to embarrass him. Will he fess up? Then so be it. Will he not fess up? I will die, but I will not be the one to embarrass him. Our sages say, from Tamar we learn, better to throw yourself into a burning furnace than to shame another human being. Now, I mean, you, you can imagine what's going on here. You can imagine what people are talking about her, what's about to happen to her. Think about how quickly, when we get accused of the smallest thing and it touches our ego, we right away, let's say we're not the ones that did it, we right away, he did it, it wasn't me, he did it. So much so that the Talmud says that there was a sage who accused his son of something and his son said to him, but it was so-and-so the tailor. And his father looked at him and said, you were just bitten by gossip. How could you have said that? In other words, the expectation is not to snitch, not to say gossip, and not to shame another person at all costs. And then what happens is, by the way, this is so real in Jewish law that, you know, I personally know someone who sat in prison for a year, an older rabbi who sat in prison for a year because they were trying to get him to tattletale on other, on other people with tax evasion and whatever that story was. Anyway, when he hears this, he says, many, she is right. And here he admits that she is right because I was not planning to let her have my son. Hence, God is the one that wanted it to be offspring from her. She merited it. She merited it for her modesty in the home, for the way that she was so selfless and righteous. And therefore, he says, Tzot kamimeni. And here there are two opinions. One opinion is that he kept her as his wife. And another opinion is that, no, he wasn't with her no more because of the problematic situation that she was his daughter-in-law. Now, she has twins. One is Peretz, like I told you, and one is Zorach. And it tells us that Zorach was the first one that stuck out his hand, and they tied a red ribbon to know which one of the twins would be the firstborn. And all of a sudden, his hand gets pulled in, and out comes Peretz. And that's what Peretz means, to bust forth. And that's why this is the sign of Mashiach, which will break forth from all the constraints. So we have the story with Peretz, and the, the, uh, the person is going to lead us, uh, bring us, his, from, his, from his offspring will come Mashiach. And again, I pointed this out in a previous class. I'll point it out again. You know, Mashiach in Judaism is, is by no, 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 God forbid, no, no son of God. No, it's, it's a regular child of a father and a mother, which has a grandfather, a great-grandfather. And what's amazing is that you would think that Mashiach, who is the choice chosen one, the word Mashiach actually means anointed. You would think that he would have the most pristine, holy, pure lineage. And look what's going on here. Right here we see that he comes from an incestual relationship between a father-in-law and a daughter-in-law. 
And then there's also from the other side, he comes from a father and a daughter having a child, the story of Lot and his daughter. And, and it's interesting why that is. And there's a lot of talk about it in Hasidus. Anyway, going on further, now that we have the birth of the lineage of Mashiach, we're going to go back to the story of exile. And Joseph is brought to Sarhat Abachim. He's brought to the person who's in charge of the meats in Pharaoh's palace. And he's very successful. He's very loyal. He's very honest. He's running everything for his, for his master. And his master is finding great blessings and wealth in the work of Joseph. And what happens is that Joseph's mistress, his master's wife, takes a lustful, um, uh, a, a lust towards him. Now, I want to share with you again something unbelievable. Now, sages tell us that the wife of, of, of Potiphar, which was the master of um, Joseph, did not have lustful intentions. Rather, she saw in the stars that there was going to be offspring between her and Joseph. And she actually, that is why she wanted it. It wasn't about the lust and the sex. It was about fulfilling what she saw as destiny. However, stargazers, while they see things, they don't know exactly what they see. Because actually, later on in the story, when Joseph becomes viceroy, we find out that Joseph is given as a wife, Asnas Bas Poitifera. Asnat, the daughter of Potifera. Hence, she saw something that was true, but it wasn't from her, it was from her daughter. And here again, I want to point out, Asnat was not the biological daughter of Potiphar and his wife. Rather, if you want to know who she actually was, she was the offspring of Dina when Dina got pregnant from her rape. And that is why she left the family and she went to Egypt. And over there, she was adopted by Potiphar and by Potiphar's wife. And once again, you see that an adoptive child who you take care of, carry through their sicknesses and care for them and educate them is considered your offspring. Hence, Joseph and Asnas's offspring is seen in destiny as the, the, the adoptive mother of Potiphar's, uh, of Asnas's grand, um, as her grandchildren. Okay. Interesting that twice we have this in this Torah portion pointing out how important it is, the relationship and the respect to an adoptive parent who brings you up. Anyway, we're going on further. That's not going to happen until later. I just wanted to give you the insight that she wasn't just being lustful for Joseph. And she keeps on trying to entice Joseph. Joseph says, how can I do that? My master has trusted me with everything. The only thing in his household that doesn't belong to me is his wife. And how do you want me to, to, to betray him that way? Finally, it was a, an Egyptian religious holiday. So everyone went to church. She said she's not feeling good. Joseph, of course, wouldn't go to church to participate in another religion's holiday. So she knew she would be alone with him. And that's when she grabs onto him. and. 
she she literally wants to force him to be with her and he goes ahead and he just quickly pulls off his robe that she was holding on to and runs away and the robe stays by her and it's interesting our sages tell us that joseph was going to succumb and all of a sudden he saw a clear image of his father's face and he said i can't do this which just tells us you know not always not always do we have the energy of our own to go ahead and hold strong in the time of temptation and therefore it's okay to think about those who would be so disturbed by your failure and to use that spiritual energy of those people to piggyback on that to be able to pull you out of your moment of weakness and then the story goes on that she goes now and reverses the story she tells her husband that joseph tried to rape me and potiphar gets angry and potiphar throws joseph in jail now because potiphar was a minister in the palace which jail did he throw him into he threw him into he threw joseph into the palace's prison and that's why when the when the wine merchant and the baker by pharaoh are thrown into prison they're all in the same prison now once again joseph rises up to the point where the person the warden trusts him with everything and he's the one that's that's running the prison <laughs> that's interesting not that i should be comparing these things but there's an awesome movie called shawshank redemption and that movie every time i thought about it i always thought about joseph the amazing the amazing human power that even when you were wronged and your life was completely thrown into chaos you're in prison for a crime you didn't do and nevertheless you don't lose your humanity you don't become a number or an object you don't become less than human but rather you rise up and not only do you rise up for yourself but you bring hope to those around you personally i must tell you my children once asked me the question and you know i'm sure many fathers get asked this question if you had a choice to meet with any one of the biblical figures who would you want to meet with my answer without hesitation was joseph i find joseph such a source of energy you know keeps on keeps on rising up being thrown down only to rise back up thrown down only to rise back up and obviously each time that he's rising up he's doing this to his surroundings with him so it's just an amazing amazing story joseph anyway so one day he sees the wine merchant and the baker are looking all sour-faced and he asks them why are you sour-faced now i want to share with you an insight of the rebbe joseph is busy with his own suffering sold into slavery by his brothers separated from his father thrown into prison by his master when he did nothing but but helped him become great and here he is and who is standing in front of him sour-faced people of the same ilk 
from his last cause of suffering, a minister of Pharaoh's elite. He should just like, why, why would he even care that these people are suffering? And I used the word these people, you know, the ones that made me suffer. And now I'm in prison because of these people. But that notion that Joseph is able to not only overcome his own victimhood, but be able to care for others, others which are of the people who caused his suffering. And what does he care about? Not that one is vomiting and one is burning up with fever. They're looking depressed. They're looking upset. They're having a bad day. Joseph wants to be of help. And what does Joseph do? He asks, why? Why has your faces fallen? Why are you sour-faced? Why are you frowning? So they tell him the dream. And the first one tells him the dream that he had three wine grape baskets of the most beautiful grapes on his head. And he was reaching up, squeezing the grapes, making wine into Pharaoh's cup. And Joseph tells him the dream, the three baskets are three days. In three days, you will be returned to your post and you will be pouring wine into Pharaoh's cup once again. The baker sees this. He likes what he's hearing. And he tells him, I also had a dream. And I also had three baskets. And the baskets had the finest pastries in them. And the birds were eating from the pastries. And Joseph told him the three baskets are three days. And the birds eating from the baskets is because you will be hung and the birds will be eat, the vultures will be eating. And our sages say, why? Why? Why was this one returned and forgiven, this one not? So they tell us, why were they arrested? They were arrested because there was a fly in the wine and there was a pebble in the bread. And Pharaoh immediately arrested both of them for the fly in his cup of wine and for his bread in for the rock pebble in the rock so why did he forgive the wine merchant and why didn't he forgive the baker and the answer is very logical it could be that the wine merchant as as the wine was being served it could be a fly where fell in and it wasn't his fault however a pebble in the bread means that this happened in the bakery. Hence, the baker is responsible. So that's the logical reason to why. And then the Torah portion ends, and it tells us that, that, that Joseph tells the, uh, the wine merchant, please remember me when you go and you return, and please let King Pharaoh know that there's an innocent person in prison that you met. And sure enough, three days later was Pharaoh's birthday, hence the pardoning, and hence the wine merchant was returned. And the verse says he did not remember Joseph, he forgot Joseph. Why the double language? Because he didn't just, oops, I forgot, he purposely buried that. And, and here again, we have the same issue, an important lesson. There are times that when we are in unfortunate situations, financially, emotionally, marital, whatever it may be, and we talk our heart out to someone, 
and that person helps us. And thank God we get out of it. Very often our ego wants to totally negate the past and he who helped us. By the way, if you want to know such a figure in history, Stalin. Stalin, Yemach Shemo, killed everyone, including his uncle, who helped him raise to, to greatness. No one remembers before I was great. And by the way, not going to get into all of this, and I don't know the whole story, just that there's a book out, and there's a movie out. It's all about the story of McDonald's and of Roy Kroc. And it's interesting that whatever happened there, and I'm not judging, I'm not judging whether he was wrong, the McDonald brothers were wrong, but one thing for sure, the fact that he tried to delete them completely from history of McDonald's and claim total, total credit and to name his McDonald's and his not McDonald number one is the same story we're having in the Bible here. It's over and over the human, the human ego. Not only aren't you grateful to those who knew you in your less fortunate times that were there for you, you try to negate that a complete, that complete part of your life history and lack of gratitude. Anyway, those are my little insights for this week's Torah portion. Ooh, we are running late. So let's just quickly go over Hanukkah very quickly. So Hanukkah, Hanukkah is a very interesting story. Why is it an interesting story? Because the Greeks did not destroy our temple, but rather the Greeks contaminated our holy temple in Jerusalem. The Greeks were not out to annihilate the Jewish people like Haman was, but rather they wanted to annihilate the spirituality of the Jewish people. Now, the Greeks had great, great respect. I mean, this was after, way after Alexander. Alexander had the ultimate respect. He met the high priest and he studied um, uh, the Judaism. But later on, they always had the respect for people's culture. Unlike the Romans, the Greeks never destroyed the culture when they took over. But on the other hand, they couldn't stand this notion of the Jewish people being holy, doing holy acts, having reverence. They wanted to see religion and all its traditions as self-perfection. And that's perfect. And that's beautiful. You should do that. You should keep a diet. And if it's going to be kosher, let it be kosher. You should be able to have all these laws of restrictions and, and, and obligations and, and traditions. This is your identity. This is beautiful. But stop with the holiness. Stop with the divinity. They, they didn't like that. They found that as, as almost humiliating to the human race. The human race is the top of the pyramid, and, and we don't have this subordination to a God of, with obedience. It's all got to be beautiful with feelings. They too had gods. They had many gods, and they had logic to their gods, and they had interaction. But the Jewish concept of obedience, the Jewish concept that when you're cooking and then you're going to go sit down and pray, you first wash your hands. Not wash your hands with soap and water. Wash your hands a spiritual purification way. That drove them nuts. 
the, the knowledge that when they studied, they didn't just study Torah as a great human masterpiece, but as a divine sacredness, this drove them nuts. And that's why they did not destroy the physicality of the Jew, the physicality of the, of the holy temple. Rather, they were bent on destroying the spirituality. Hence, we say in our prayer that they wanted to not eliminate the study of Torah, the study of your Torah, capital Y, God, the observance of your commandment. And that's why that's what they fought against. They fought against the, the circumcision being a bond, a holy, obedient, sacred bond between the Jewish body and God. And that's what they were fighting. And that's why the war manifested and the miracle manifested itself in its culmination with oil. According to Kabbalah, each liquid represents a different concept. Now, wine represents understanding. However, oil represents wisdom. Now, the word for wisdom in Hebrew is chachma. Now, the word chachma breaks into two words, koachma, the potential of what? Now, the word ma, what, represents humility. When the Jewish people ganged up on Moses in the desert, he said to them, va'anachnu ma, we are but what? It's God. We don't perform miracles. So the definition of chachma is the potential of humility. Humility is most embraced in obedience. It's not that I have to understand and appreciate before I do. I can do and then learn obediently and then learn to go ahead and and enjoy intellectually and emotionally. Hence, the story goes on that they found only one jug of oil. Why is it one jug of oil? On a spiritual level, what that means is that many times all our outer layers become secularized. We become part of the rat race. We become part of the Johns and the Mikes and the Does. We, we want to be like all the others in our, uh, in our environment. We don't want to be chosen. We don't, want, we don't want to be different. All our mind, our heart, everything is becoming secularized, part of the human race. And all of a sudden, instead of living the Jewish dream, we're starting to think about living the American dream. And that is very different than the Jewish dream. The American dream, English is the language which I, the letter I, when I'm referring to me, is capitalized. It's very egocentric, while Judaism is not that way. Hence, the Torah is telling us and the history is telling us, no matter how secularized we become, Deep within each and every one of us, there is what they call in Yiddish a pintalayid. In Spanish, they call it chispa de judio. It's that core essence of our soul, which will never conform, which will never betray. And therefore, the Talmud tells us an unbelievable law. The Talmud, it's not a law actually, it's a teaching. The Talmud tells us that the Jewish thief, while he's stealing, 
He's praying to God not to get caught. Now the question is, if you believe in God, why are you stealing? If you don't believe in God, why are you praying? And the answer is yes. The answer is that while my outsides, my mind, my lust, my desire, my dreams have been taken captives to the secular dream, there'll never, never be a point where that one core essence piece of God within me would become contaminated. Hence, the story is that they found, they got back in touch with that truest inner child, that truest piece of God within them. They found that one pure oil that did not get caught up in the Hellenism and in the secularism and in all of that. And then they used that one jar of oil, that one point within, to rekindle all the candelabras, all the branches of the menorah. And that's the story of Hanukkah. There comes a point where we just look in the mirror and we ask ourselves the famous lyrics from Rocky. Have we forgotten what we started fighting for? I had a dream when I was single and it wasn't to become a Bill Gates or a Mark Zuckerberg. It was primarily to be able to have a peaceful Jewish home, to be able to have Jewish children, to be able to have a Passover Seder, to be able to have a Shabbos table. And then somehow I got caught up in a different dream. I got caught up in a secular pursuit. Somehow I, 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 I let them to convince me that it's all about wealth and fame and power and honor and glory and beauty. And then there comes that moment of truth. And then what you need to find and what I need to find is that one remaining pure jug of olive oil. And from that, we can rekindle the entire, the entire way we live. We can rekindle our home rekindle our mind, rekindle our relationships, rekindle our pursuits, rekindle our office. And all of a sudden, everything is shining with the Jewish dream. People, thank you. I'm gonna go ahead and unmute.